So the talk of the media, uh, whether it's the newspapers or the radio or the broadcast televisions, it's all about the Conservative Party conference that's going on in Manchester. And there's a sort of air of triumphalism, I think, about the conference, as they're still considerably ahead of Keir Starmer's Labour Party in the polls. And from what I've heard from people there, they're partying hard. Yep, they're drinking champagne. They're celebrating in style up in Manchester. And you've never heard Boris Johnson being more bullish than he is. Well, this morning, I was out and about locally for a couple of hours, visiting various shops, and believe it or not, actually for the first time in a week, able to get some fuel. And we'll talk a bit more about fuel later on. But not a single person I met talked about the conference in Manchester. Not a single person I talked to was looking forward to Rishi Sunak's speech, or indeed even the important speech that was going to be given by Lord Frost um, about Northern Ireland. Now, what they were talking about was the fact that nothing in this country actually works. We were told on Wednesday and Thursday of last week by the government that the fuel crisis was easing, there was nothing to worry about, when actually, in London and the South East, the situation was worsening. And even today, only 50% of pumps in the whole of South Eastern England actually have unleaded and diesel for sale. And whilst I did manage to get some fuel this weekend, the queues and the blockages on the roads were something really to witness. And why is all this happening? Well, of course, there are some who will say it's all because of Brexit. But the real reason is, of course, that we've had a race to the bottom because of EU rules. Uh, and we've seen uh, conditions and pay for HG drivers, HGV drivers going down the drain over the course of the last few years. And a backlog at the DVLA. I mean, can you believe it? A backlog at the DVLA of 54,000 HGV applications. I had a furious email from somebody that works at DVLA over the weekend saying I shouldn't criticise them. I wasn't criticising you, Claire. I'm sure you work very hard at the DVLA, but I am criticising Grant Shapps, who knew about this problem back in March of this year and appeared to do precious little. You begin to feel that nothing is actually working in this country. And then, of course, we've got the eco-idiots of Insulate Britain. But we've had tough words from Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, Tough words from Boris Johnson, uh, Johnson. Now we were told an injunction had been passed, so it wouldn't happen again. Yet today was the worst day yet of Insulate Britain, as they blocked the Blackwall Tunnel, they blocked Wandsworth Bridge and many other major routes into London. And look, you see on these pictures what happens when people lose respect for government, lose respect for policing powers, they start to take the law into their own hands. And I don't blame... Uh, those guys for dragging protesters out of the road because they are trying to earn a living. And we'll do that story in more depth. But once again, we just don't be able to appear to get a grip on any of this. Well, if it all becomes too much for you, and if, like me, you agree that things just aren't working in this country anymore and that we have a government that just doesn't seem to understand what the problems are for millions of people every day, well, you could always go on holiday. Yes, why not go on holiday? The problem is, when you get back in to Stansted or Heathrow or pretty much anywhere else, you'll find that the E-gates aren't working. You'll find that border force are understaffed because at times they have to send big resources down to Dover. And you'll find queues of perhaps up to five hours. That from a border force under a Home Secretary who told us the Channel migrant crisis would end before too long, 
And so far this year, 17,000 people have been processed through Dover. And towards the end of this week, when the fine weather comes back, we'll be back to hundreds of people every day. Another crisis, another part of our government system that simply isn't fit for purpose. And woe betide you in modern Britain if you're ill or if you suspect that you might be ill. Because in many parts of the country, your chance of a face-to-face -face consultation with a GP is hovering at around about 50%. Oh, and that's if you can be prepared to wait the five weeks that it now takes to get a GP appointment in parts of Cumbria. For the first time ever, the number of hip and knee replacements done in private hospitals has exceeded that done in the National Health Service as people who are fortunate enough to have money increasingly opt out of the system. We have an impending health crisis of a massive scale. And the fact the government tell us there'll be 40 more walk-in centres I don't think even begins to scratch the surface of the problem. But don't worry, because Christmas is coming. And we can all celebrate at Christmas. But sadly, Scrooge has even managed to get hold of that one, as we're told there won't be any pigs in blankets, and you'll be very lucky to get a turkey, as they're selling out already. So I put it to you that this is a government that can celebrate all they like, party as hard as they want to in Manchester. This is a government that is completely out of touch with where the country is today. Let me know what you think, please. GBviews at GBnews. UK. Have I got this right, or am I being a little bit too harsh on the government? Now, one of Boris's big pledges, and something he will champion this week, of course, is we're going to switch fully, in fact, some newspapers suggested wholly, to renewable energy by 2035. Yes, he's not been put off by the crisis that occurred a couple of weeks ago, not been put off for one moment by the fact that when the wind didn't blow for nearly a month, wind only gave us just over 2% of our energy needs. No, he's pushing on. He's pushing on to make us the Saudi Arabia of wind. This is what Prime Minister Johnson had to say earlier on today. I think that what we're seeing is the recovery of the economy. We've now got the fastest growing economy in the G7. And I think that you've got unemployment way, way lower than people forecast. Uh, you've got jobs being created the whole time. And what we want to see uh, are high wage, high wage, high skilled jobs. And I think business is doing a fantastic job of uh, now of investing in apprentices, of investing in, in skills. And that's the way to go for the UK. What I'm saying is that we can do for our entire energy production by 2035 what we're doing with uh, internal combustion engine vehicles uh, by 2030. So from, from 2030, uh, you won't be able to buy any more a new hydrocarbon fueled uh, internal combustion engine uh, car. Uh, and we're going to move to either to EVs or to vehicles powered by hydrogen or, or clean, power, clean power of one kind or another. And that will make a huge difference to uh, our, our CO2 output, to controlling climate change, to the planet, but it will also put the UK at the forefront of this amazing new industry of, of clean vehicles. And what we're also saying is that by 2035, looking at the progress that we're making uh, in wind power, where we lead the world now in offshore wind, uh, looking at what we can do with other renewable sources, carbon capture and, uh, and storage, uh, with, with, with hydrogen potentially, we think we can get to 
uh, complete clean energy production by 2035. And who's paying for it, Prime Minister? No doubt it will be even greater green subsidies. No doubt it'll be lots and lots of people at the bottom end of the income uh, chain who are pumping money into rich foreign companies and continuing to pay many wealthy landowners. I have to say, I think the offshore wind farms we built around the coast of this country are some of the ugliest things I've ever seen in my life. They are awful. Environmentally, they're bad too because they create scour holes around them uh, where actually what happens is the seabed goes back to bare rock in most cases. And of course, sometimes they catch fire. Yes, they do. They go wrong. They catch fire. And the cost of servicing offshore wind farms is just unbelievable. I'm sure in years to come, generations will look back at these rusting hulks out there across our oceans and wonder what folly this was that we pursued. But Boris, believe it or not, wants to quadruple the number of wind farms around British coasts. I think it's the most dreadful plan. I can accept things that are ugly if they actually work. But this technology cannot work without back up and that's why we've become so reliant upon gas even though strategically the government has us down to 1.7 percent of our annual needs in strategic reserve so at every level i think government has got things wrong on energy now last week i had a guest here in the studio from the london school of economics who was making the argument for wind energy for renewables and making them very strongly tonight i'm going to give you a slightly different perspective i'm going to speak to dr benny Pizer, director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation. Benny, good evening and welcome back to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. So the one thing that it would appear uh, that the Prime Minister believes in with passion and with all his heart and all his soul is that quadrupling the number of wind turbines in British seas and oceans is the way forward and that we will have a fully sustainable industry, renewable industry, uh, providing all of our needs by 2035. He did hint, though, today, Benny, that we would increase nuclear power as a backup. What do you make of the Prime Minister's plan? And what is it likely, please, to cost people? Well, um, Boris sounds um, increasingly like Angela Merkel in Germany. She made basically the same promises, the same pledges, and we know how disastrous the end has been. They've been uh, voted out. Uh, the, so the kind of German uh, conservatives are in disarray. Um, they've lost election on the very same agenda, same promises, same pledges, and just people have had enough of these promises and pledges as their energy bills go through the roof and the prices go through the roof. Um, I don't think uh, this is viable. Most of these ideas are just on paper. Um, many of the technologies necessary to run Britain just on wind and nuclear are on paper, wishful thinking. Um, the costs are staggering. They're already roughly 10 billion per annum. And um, people are, half of that is being paid through energy bills, and half of it is being paid through companies um, essentially 
um, putting it on their products, on the prices. So people are feeling this cost constantly rising. And there's a threshold, there's a tipping point where people will simply say enough is enough. So I don't think, uh, I mean, this is all about the UN climate conference in November in Glasgow. It's grandstanding, but it's pie in the sky, unrealistic uh, technologically and economically and socially and politically. It's unsustainable. It's not going to happen. But, Benny, in terms of nuclear power, unlike wind, at least that provides reliable electricity, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mind you, you can't really heat your home uh, with nuclear. That would require, you know, ripping out every single... Uh, gas boiler uh, in the country and replacing it with some kind of uh, ineffective heat pumps. Uh, But obviously nuclear energy is much more reliable and I do hope um, there are also new nuclear technologies coming on board, but it's not going to happen by 2035. It might take much longer. These things, uh, you know, develop much, much slower than politicians think. Uh, and in any case, um, nuclear can't be used for backup for wind. That's for certain. Uh, they can't be used like gas-fired power plants. So nuclear isn't really the backup. What the government is thinking uh, about are huge batteries, lithium-based batteries, which uh, are fire risk and interconnectors. Uh, to our friends in France who will always provide us with help. and Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Benny, we're importing nearly 10% of our electricity from France, aren't we? Which leaves us, actually, given the diplomatic rows we have with France over fishing in Northern Ireland, we are pretty vulnerable, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and think about the um, almost a month-long uh, period where we had very little wind. Uh, these periods where you know, the, the, all the wind fleets in the world just just don't generate enough electricity, they are not just in Britain. They happen all over Europe. So in those periods, some countries we rely on uh, might simply don't might not have this uh, surplus energy. So the reliance on these interconnectors is is a risky thing and very expensive as well. And as you said, politically always uh, risky. Yeah, that's my view. Benny, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And don't any of you viewers ever say you don't hear both sides of the argument on this show because you do. Now, it's day two of the Tory party conference up in Manchester. And I'm joined by our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Welcome to Manchester. Now, I hear that, uh, I hear that everyone's partying hard, uh, very upbeat mood, a bullish prime minister, uh, big speeches today from Rishi Sunak, and no one thinks there's any crisis in the country whatsoever. Would that be about right or not? You know, it, well, it's a bit weird as in, like, you're right. It's in some ways quite flat, but assured kind of also bizarrely optimistic, well, maybe not bizarrely optimistic, I shouldn't say bizarrely, it is optimistic because they know that they are fundamentally, I think, electorally in a good place. Uh, But it does seem somewhat detached from some of these big, big challenges coming down the track uh, for the country, whether it's disruption to goods, higher inflation, uh, whether it's the prospect potentially that interest rates at some stage may need to rise, and, of course, this idea of tax rises, which are definitely coming down the track. 
And it is interesting listening to Rishi Sunak today. Again, the kind of conference was summed up in his speech. Very little policy detail, hardly any announcements at all, apart from the extension of some extra money, particularly for people who want to get into work as young people. But in the end, there was lots of big, aspirational, bold ideas that Britain has got an optimistic uh, future. He did deal with that really crunch, crunch issue, though, Nigel, of uh, taxation, suggesting uh, that it was immoral uh, in many ways to put on the burden of government spending that we've seen over the last couple of years on this is your gig, the no? taxpayer of the future, essentially to put it onto the national debt to a large degree. His argument is that we need to pay for it now. Uh, and he was pretty unapologetic about those uh, tax rises they're going to see over the next six months or so. But there are many Conservatives in many ways who are pretty uncomfortable asking questions, what does it mean to be a Conservative at the moment, given where the government seems to be taking uh, the country? But let's have a listen in to what the Chancellor Rishi Sunak had to say a little bit earlier in his speech here in Manchester. I have to be blunt with you. Our recovery comes with a cost. Our national debt is almost a hundred percent of GDP. So we need to fix our public finances. Because strong public finances don't happen by accident. They are a deliberate choice. They are a legacy for future generations and a safeguard against future threats. I'm grateful. We should all be grateful to my predecessors and their 10 years of sound conservative management of our economy. <laughs> 10 years of sound management of the economy where the national debt went up every single year. Darren, do help me. That slogan, build back better, does anyone know what it actually means? Well, the weird thing, isn't it, Nigel? It's shared by Joe Biden. Justin Trudeau uh, ran it in the last election at all. Uh, they would argue it's all about levelling up. But then what does levelling up mean? So Michael what does Gold that was trying mean, to put Darren? some flesh on the bones today. Well, so, I mean, he says, for example, it means better infrastructure in places like the north of England with railways, better broadband services that people can work from home. It means better local government with more power devolved uh, to the mayors that we've seen uh, elected in recent years. But ultimately, I think the bigger question is not necessarily what it is, is how can it be measured? What are the metrics, Nigel, to, to, to measure whether the Conservatives have delivered on this thing called levelling up? Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Now, one part of today's conference that perhaps was slightly less waffle was Lord Frost. Yeah, indeed. He was uh, pretty bold, uh, I would say pretty forthright in terms of what he had to say about Article 16, the Northern Ireland Protocol, this is a continuing issue, isn't it? What precisely is going to happen? Uh, what are the UK government going to do? We had Arlene Foster here today in this very studio saying it needs to be enacted right now. Uh, we had actually all the union's leaders, including the head of the DUP, the new head of the DUP, Geoffrey Johnson, meeting with the Prime Minister today, insisting action needs to be taken. Now, Lord Frost is saying that fundamentally something needs to happen, the EU need to change course, that the way that the Northern Ireland Protocol be, the way it's been implemented is not working, uh, that it is essentially dividing up the United Kingdom. The big question, I think, Nigel, is are the government actually really going to act on this? They keep alluding to the fact that they may well trigger Article 16, but to date they seem to be kind of dancing around it rather than uh, doing it. But the rhetoric today, essentially from uh, David Frost, was quite strong on saying the EU needs to change their game and also effectively telling Joe Biden as well to keep his nose out of uh, the affairs in Northern Ireland. Uh, this is Lord Frost speaking a little earlier. 
the Northern Ireland Protocol is not working and needs to change. Yes, we agreed the protocol in that difficult autumn two years ago. We knew we were taking a risk, but a worthy one, in the cause of peace, in the cause of protecting the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Of course, we wanted to negotiate something better. If it had not been for the madness of the Surrender Act, we could have done so. So we worried right from the start that the protocol would not take the strain if not handled sensitively. As it has turned out, we were right. The arrangements have, become, have begun to come apart even more quickly than we feared. Thanks to the EU's heavy-handed actions, cross-community political support for the protocol has collapsed. Darren, thank you, and we'll come back to you tomorrow night from Manchester. And let's see, Darren made a point there about Article 16, you know, the government talks tough. And by the way, I like Lord Frost very, very much. You can tell he actually believes in Brexit. He really, really does. Will the government have the courage to trigger Article 16, as indeed I think now they should? I very much doubt it. And I also think they've got something else wrong at Manchester. It's not the Conservative Party. They're Social Democrats. They ought really to change their names. In a moment... The crisis at the pumps. We'll talk to the boss of the Petrol Retailers Association to see just how much better things may well have got. With the Tories in party mood in Manchester and much of the country, in my view, still in crisis, I've been asking you, is the government out of touch? Some responses that have come in. Anthony on Twitter says, the country is not falling into pieces and a greener energy policy is exactly what we need. Anthony, if you can afford it, good for you. Pat says they're drinking champagne in Manchester while hundreds are living on our streets, including many former servicemen. It's a disgrace. And that's a theme that comes back time and time again. Lee says, I arrived late at work today because protesters from Insulate Britain were blocking the road. No one was arresting them. Does the government even care? Well, they say they do. Henry on email says, of course they are all out of touch. They are living in an alternative universe. No fuel, people gluing themselves to the road and no GPs. Sounds a bit like my talk up earlier on. So, I left GB News at midday yesterday. Uh, went back home, and I passed a petrol station, and there was the army. So I stopped and went in and spoke to the lads. Uh, they were from the Royal Scots, and they said, yep, we're getting ready to start delivering petrol to the parts of the country that really need it. And I have to say, this morning, there was the most almighty queue, uh, but I was able to get some fuel for the car. Uh, quite what the situation is like in the rest of the southeast, uh, eastern region, parts of London... I'm not sure. Uh, better, I suspect, but how much better, I'm not sure. And I'm joined once again, I'm pleased to say, by Brian Madison, chairman of the Petrol Retailers Association. Brian, thank you and welcome back to the show. Uh, it appears, certainly from what I could see, a bit better, but still not great. What would you say? That's exactly right, Nigel. Our poll today showed that still 20% of all the independent forecourts, London, the home counties, were still dry of fuel. The rest of the country doing very much better, uh, return to normal um, demand, 
uh, return to normal supplies. Not perfect because, of course, uh, what they have got is not full tanks underground yet. More deliveries are needed in the rest of the country, but operating better. London, the southeast, remains a real challenge for us all. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, who's to say uh, that with massive demand pre-Christmas uh, on HGV drivers, I mean, who's to say this won't happen again, Brian? Well, I am heartened a little bit by some of the initiatives taken by the government. One came out today from the handily named D-L-U-H-C, Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, which said they were going to uh, extend and, and the planning um, condition exemption for fuel at nighttime deliveries through until the 31st of January. Okay. So if you live near a petrol station, sorry, you might be woken up at about 2 a.m. while the delivery comes in. But that's all good for us in London, the southeast, to get more fuel. Um, they are increasing the length of time for the temporary visas uh, for HGV tanker drivers specifically from the continent, about 300 of them, to the end of March. That's good. They haven't arrived yet, but that may help us get through the Christmas period. But what we're seeing today is still quite difficult. The military, which some of us thought were going to be driving the green military tankers, and therefore increasing the capacity, or they were going to drive the reserve fleet, which Kwasi Kwarteng mentioned today. Uh, the reserve fleet, one of about 50 tankers, commercial tankers at St. Ives, has remained untouched throughout the day. And actually what the drivers, military drivers are doing, are driving commercial tankers like you see mm. on the screen now. Yeah. So actually, not much additional capacity. No, I, I find that very, very odd. I also find it odd that it takes so long to mobilise the army. I mean, we've known about this problem for, what, 10 days? Something like that, 9, 10 days. And it has taken a very long time. But I won't draw you uh, into making political comments. That wouldn't be fair. But, Brian, I do want to ask you this. Are there any lessons we can learn from the last week and a half? Yes, one is that the volume of tank uh, capacity on our roads far exceeds our forecourts. And that is ever going to be the case. The number of forecourts is reduced from 2,000. There were 13,500 of them. Today, there's less than 8,500. So the fuel under the ground, if anything, has got considerably less. Yet the number of cars on the road has increased from about 30 million to 36 million. So whenever we have the hint of a fuels crisis, uh, then if there is a surge in demand, we uh, will never ever be prepared to overcome that easily. And so the government must listen much more carefully to any industry concerns that are raised and act on them. And I would say that the, the one problem here is that industry, and whether they were in the right or in the wrong, but there was a problem, they took it to the government, the government didn't listen, and here we are today uh, in this situation where people who need fuel just can't get it, and this is uh, very bad for the economy and for them as consumers. 
It's a familiar tale, actually, across many, many parts of our national life. The population has risen so massively since the year 2000, and the infrastructure hasn't caught up. So finally, given there is this shortage in the sector, is petrol retailing a good business for people or young entrepreneurs to get into? It's not bad at all if you have <laughs> on your site alternative uh, facilities. So the federal station near to me in West Malling, he's just one convenience retailer of the year. He's got a seven-day-a-week, eight-to-late butchery serving the most wonderful meats. He's got his own bakery. He does flowers. I mean, it's just like wow. a mini supermarket. And so if you've got one of those, and he's also got some fantastic uh, car wash equipment, if you've got one of those as well, then I think going forward, it looks good, despite what we're all going to see is perhaps more electric charges around the place. And ultimately, there will be less fossil fuels sold. But I'm hoping not for a while yet, because my dear old 15-year-old Volvo needs to be filled up with diesel for a few years yet. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. And I have to say, this station at West Morling sounds wonderful. If any people had enough fuel to go and visit it. Brown Madison, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, sticking with the motoring theme, yep, 54 insulate Britain protesters were out there again today, blocking the Blackwall Tunnel, Wandsworth Bridge, the Hangar Lane gyratory system and many others. And this morning, a woman whose mother is seriously ill in hospital could be seen pleading with protesters to move out of the way. Well, quite understandably, you can see the angst and upset uh, that that woman's in. And this is what Extinction Rebellion founder Roger Hallam told the podcast, the Unbreak the Planet podcast, when he was asked what he would do if there was an ambulance approaching a protest that he was involved in. I'd stay there. You would, yeah. And if it were an ambulance and there was someone that could potentially die in there, would you stay there? Yeah. I can't even tell you the absolute contempt I feel for Roger Hallam for saying those words and for all of those people there on Wandsworth Bridge this morning not listening to the genuine pleas of that woman. I'm sick to death of the government talking tough about this, people's lives being inconvenienced, people's jobs and income being threatened, and the tougher Priti Patel talks, the tougher Boris Johnson talks, the worse and the larger scale these protests become. We need to arrest these people, to charge these people, and to put these people out of harm's way. And if they think that by doing that, they achieve some wonderful form of martyrdom, and if more come in their place, and I don't think that many more would, but if more come in their place, well, if that's what we have to do to keep our country moving, that is what we have to do. But again, it's government that talks tough and just doesn't deliver. And I think people are pretty much sick of it. And you saw earlier on, at the top of the show, drivers this morning 
on Wandsworth Bridge, physically manhandling protesters out of the way. When people lose confidence in government, when people lose confidence in the police, when people think that nothing is going to be done, they, as you can see here, begin to take the law into their own hands. And that, and I can't blame people for doing it, but that is dangerous. Something really bad is going to happen unless the government steps in and does something. And I feel very strongly about that. Now, at quarter past four this afternoon, Facebook went down. Yes, you couldn't access it, you couldn't update on it, you couldn't do anything. And, of course, Facebook own WhatsApp, which is used by millions of people in this country, and Instagram as well. And the whole lot went down at 4.15. It's been out for hours. It's out globally. There are all sorts of conspiracy theories as to who's behind it or what's behind it. And I'm not going to speculate on any of that. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you realise that Facebook own Instagram. They own Facebook. And you realise uh, just how dependent much of our lives have become on these tech giants. I don't think that is a healthy thing in any way at all. In a moment, we'll be talking pints with survivalist specialist Ray Mears. Well, joining me tonight in the GB News pub on Talking Pints is bushcraft and survival expert and, of course, broadcaster. And I think he's also a bit of an historian, too. It's Ray Mears. Ray, welcome to Talking Pints. Cheers, Nigel. Very, very, very nice to you. good to see you. Mm. No, I do feel that I know you because I've watched lots of your programmes. <laughs> but let's get back to the start. Um, you grew up not very far away from me along the ridge of the North Downs. Uh, just over the border in Surrey. I'm on the other side. And it said that it was... You were sort of inspired into all of this at school by a teacher. Is yep. that... Yeah, I went to a, a school where um, we had Saturday school. Uh, so did I. That's very... Uh, I used to hate it. <laughs> not the only one. Because they're now talking today... About bringing it back. About bringing Saturday <laughs> yeah. school back for kids to catch up on. We stuff. all hated it. Um, but one thing we all look forward to is that we had judo. And uh, the man who taught judo had fought in the Second World War behind the lines in Burma. And so the Chindits or whatever they were I don't know whether he was in the Chindits. We, I don't think we've ever found out, but he'd certainly been there. And, um, <laughs> and at a time when I was wanting to know how to stay outside and camp outside, and, you know, I remember saying to him, you know, I'd like to be able to camp out, but I haven't got any camping equipment. And he said, oh, you don't need it. We didn't have it in the Second World War. And... You know how that, it was. That, you know, something. that, that generation had really yeah, lived. Tough people. They, they were tough, and uh, they, they they didn't speak of the hardships that they'd been through. And the door swung open to this fascinating world. And um, he didn't have all the answers and all the knowledge that I was looking for, but he taught me how to go about finding it. And I'm still following his advice now. And were you in scouts or, or army cadets? Scouts. Or? Yeah, I was in the scouts and I was in the cubs, and I enjoyed that very much. But I didn't get to do as much of the thing I wanted to do, so I went off to do my own thing. When I was at school, I was in the, in the cadets, yeah. and uh, I, I had the choice between... It was a great school I went to. We had, we had the choice between doing the Duke of Edinburgh's Award or... What, I mean, what an amazing thing that's been. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. Millions and millions brilliant. of young people have it's done it. It's just brilliant. It's, it's, it, 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 oh, it's incredible. It speaks for itself. We had 
Air Force cadets, Army cadets and Navy cadets. And Army was obviously the natural choice. But I went for the naval route because the Navy published a list of all the courses you could go on at the beginning of the year and the others didn't. And uh, so I signed up to do all the courses I could with the Royal Marines, which was fantastic. Great fun. And sort of a man that's followed in your footsteps a bit, Bear Grylls, he's now the chief scout, which I, I mean, I have to say, I think it's a very inspiring move. Yeah, I think he's done um, great work for them. You know, when you look at, um, Ray, when you look at, you know, teenage obesity, um, just not as many youngsters playing team sports, mm. uh, presumably we should be encouraging scouts, cadet forces, all this sort of thing, as much as, much as we possibly can. I, I think that we um, completely underestimate the role that those youth organisations play, um, not just in, in terms of the, um, the, the, the development of self-confidence of young people, um, but more than that, it's a time away from school. It's a time away from parents to allow, uh, within, a, within a safety net, um, yeah. self-discovery. And I think that that's really important because we need to invest in the youth of our nation in terms of their brains, their psychology, their spirit. And um, I worry that we live in an age where... Spirit? That's spirit. Not, it's not a word we hear very often. No, anymore. it's really important. It's a, it, 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 ethics... Spirit, morality, a sense of themselves. We live in an age where people feel self-entitled and tend to be a little bit selfish. And I think working for organisations mm. like that, youngsters learn to help each other. And, you know, there isn't anybody, I think, who's uh, gone on to do other things who'd been a part of one of those organisations who hasn't, at some point, had the help and the support of another human being. And I think that is a tremendous teacher for mm. life. So you go off to learn bushcraft, and, and I'm sure you had one or two hiccups along the way doing it? Yeah, maybe. Not, not so many. Not, so many. <laughs> not that I can remember. I, I, I don't remember much um, hardship. I just remember the adventures... Um, and that's and, and I still feel that way now. So you know, you're still excited about going I'm out and doing. Still excited about what I do. I'm still learning new things because in my subject, the devil is in the detail. The more detail that you have available to you, the easier life becomes. And as you get older, you you need to make life easier. So <laughs> there's a strong incentive to keep learning, and it's that it's that journey. It's a life's journey. But you then turn this. You turn this fascination as a youngster, into a career. Mm. Uh, and you set up Woodlaw, and you start teaching people wilderness bushcraft, and you're obviously quite good at it, because suddenly the world of television is upon you. Was, was that a big surprise? Um, yeah, I guess it was. The success was a, was a surprise. I, I looked at... Television was different back then, I think. Was the, it was sort of early 90s? It obviously. was early 90s, and you yeah. couldn't just, you know, flounce onto TV. You had to earn, win your spurs. And so I, I went onto a, a magazine show. And for me, TV was a means to communicate to people about a subject that was very dear to me and that I thought was beneficial. And, of course, it's proven to be. And, and a big thing um, that I set out to do is to take the macho out of the subject because it, was, it came on the, on, on the aftermath of the Rambo movie, movies. Right. Rather painted a, 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 
the message of the Rambo movies meant one thing in America and a different thing here. We didn't understand what was really being said in those movies. And so th this subject, survival, picked up this mm. rather unpleasant sort of sociopathic taint. And I wanted to, to take that away because this is a, these, are, these are life skills that enrich your life and, and can make you not only safer, but a better human being. And trees were a big part of what you believed trees, in. Trees are massive to me, absolutely massive. I'm writing a book on trees at the moment. Um, the trees are our, our best allies as a species. So well, and, everything. well, and I mean, Boris Johnson going on about, you know, cutting carbon emissions, you'd have thought that tree planting would be quite a good way of combating that. And yet we are, I think we're 13% yeah, forested. Yep. Uh, which is actually more than it was after the First World War. Yeah, we've gone up a little bit. Yeah. But it's still a drop in the ocean. So we're one of the least forested countries yeah. in Europe. Um, you know, France is, I think, 30-something percent. So we've got a long, a long way to go. Um, what's interesting, if you look at Finland, 73% woodland and mm. one of the happiest nations in the world. So <laughs> there, there, there's a strong link to our, our mental well-being uh, to our forests. Forest but just planting trees isn't the answer, is it? Because no. the wrong trees... I mean, mm. I mean, frankly, is it, is it Kielder, that great big forest in the north of it? I've been there, yep. and it's all fir trees, yep. and underneath it, it's literally a desert. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's nothing. So of the 13% trees that we have in Britain, um, half of them are non-native coniferous forests. And that's a completely different thing. Yeah. But, I mean, I think forestry has changed its, its focus, its outlook. And, you, you know, it's easy to be critical, but the, the crop of a forest is, is measured over generations. And so policies change, attitudes change, knowledge... But planting uh, needs to have clearings, it needs to have all those sort of things, doesn't it? Not necessarily. I mean, I think we can actually uh, work to, to increase our forestry cover just by allowing rough patches of ground to plant themselves. Um, that, that won't work, obviously, when you have a national scheme for mm. the forest. But the, the healthiest forests are those that plant themselves. When a jay puts a, an acorn into the ground, you yep. get a very healthy oak tree with healthy roots that then form very yep. beneficial mycorrhizal But that takes a long time. It takes longer. So it doesn't suit the politician because they can't, you know, they can't crow about the sap. Look, look what I've planted. Yeah. But for the nation, that would be very beneficial. Mm, interesting. And your TV programmes, you did focus... I mean, I watched many of your TV programmes, and you did focus a lot on... You're the viewer. Well, no, I mean, you, know, you had some good figures. And, and, as I said, you know, Bear Grylls came after you. A bit more... Dr bit more um... Yeah, he put the macho back in. But, yes, and he that, did. But that's fine, he could, yeah. because, you know, I'd taken it away and made the subject respectable. So that, that's fine, I've got no issue with that. Tell us about history, because you did do something very interesting on, on, on history, and maybe a story that... Viewers don't know much about. Which would you well, Telemark in particular. Tel Telemark. Well, I mean, because because that heroes of Telemark. There was there was the sort of Kirk Douglas film, whatever yeah. it was, nineteen fifties or whatever. Very it was. loosely based on the story. Actually, it doesn't do too bad a job. Um, when I came into this subject, you the, the the information that was available was next to nothing. And um, people today think that all of the knowledge they learned when they learned survival and bushcraft has always been there. It hasn't. It took a lot of research, proper research, not mm -hmm. just reading books. And uh, a part of that research involved looking at both the ethnography of how native people uh, use resources in other parts of the world, but also looking at the history of how we utilise nature, how we lived closer to the land in the past. And on, on one of those investigations, I, I went to Norway because I was fascinated in the story... Uh, of the heavy water factory, and then I discovered... Which many, many viewers may not have heard okay, of. OK, so... This, this, this was the Nazi plan to develop 
a nuclear bomb, basically. Nazi plan to develop a nu nuclear bomb, well advanced prior to uh, the war beginning. Yeah. And um, the, 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 people will probably not remember that, that, that Germany invaded Norway prior to France. Mm. And one of the first things they did was they took possession of a factory in a very tight valley um, north, of, north of Oslo in a, in a village called Rukan. And here they produced uh, deuterium oxide, which we know as heavy water which was one of the chemicals that had been uh, suggested could be used to produce uh, an, uh, the, the materials to make a nuclear bomb. And, of course, the moment that this fell into Axis hands, the alarm bell started ringing. There were a lot of other things going on at the same time uh, that, that clearly showed the Germans' interest in this chemical. And... Um, the decision was made by Churchill, who, who, who sat here in London during the Blitz, realising that we were, we were in danger. And he listened to the scientists who said to him, we think the Germans are trying to make a bomb that could wipe out a whole city. Mm. And he gave the mission top priority. And then over a, um, a course of, of effectively two years, um, commandos, uh, Norwegian saboteurs were sent in, um, to uh, prepare the ground. Very brave men, incredibly mm. brave men. Mm. And then commandos were sent. It was a disastrous mission where most of them were killed or captured and murdered. And eventually a larger team, nine men uh, of Norwegian saboteurs, joined the first four men on the ground. And <coughs> it's a long story. They put paid to the German plan. Mm. But the first four men on the ground, when the commando raid went missing, they were told by London to go into the mountains and hide. Well, the radio operator who I met um, turned to me and said, when we heard this message, you know, I said, where, with what? We had no food left. We'd eaten everything. Hmm. And these men went and they hid for months in the Norwegian mountains, living on virtually nothing. And their story is truly extraordinary. Yeah, and it was, as it turned out, a very important mission, wasn't Massively important. Yeah. It was the most, yeah. it was given the yeah. highest priority yeah. of now, any mission during the war. So, Ray, you've done, you know, environmentalism, forestry, history, um, and television, lots and lots of television, and you're an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you stand politically at all. Um, I assume, you, I mean, you know, maybe I stand, you're... A, I think I stand with the trees. I trust the trees. Well, fair more than I trust the you're probably right. But you're about to go back on telly because sure. you're going to get a role here at GB News very shortly. So just share that with us. I'm, I'm just taking over on Saturday for Neil Oliver while he's having a break. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much. I think it's going to be great fun. This is Opinion TV. Now, you're allowed here <laughs> to give opinion <laughs> on current affairs. So I'm going to just throw something at you. OK. Why not? Um, insulate Britain. What should we do with those people? Or, or do they have the right to block Wandsworth Bridge? Well, they're lucky to live in a democracy where they can protest. Fair and point. I think their voice has been heard. But at the point when they are stopping a lady trying to follow a hospital, uh, an ambulance to a hospital that has a mother in it, that's too far. And um, they should be arrested and they should um, be locked away or fined uh, for causing a nuisance because now they're causing a nuisance. And I think at that point they should realise that act actually they lose friends rather than gain them. And support for their argument. Precisely. There you are. There's going to be a lot more of this coming on Saturday from Ray Mears. Ray, thank you very much thank you. for joining us here on Talking Pints today. OK, it's the last couple of minutes of the show, and it's time for that bit. Barrage the Farage, where you send in 
your questions, which I have no prior sight of whatsoever. If any are about trees, I'll drag Ray back in. Don't worry about that. John says to me, do you think Michel Barnier <laughs> would be a better French president than Emmanuel Macron? I think they'd both be absolutely hopeless. Uh, Macron, because, of course, he can't stand the British in any way at all. And uh, is a, a true believer in the European project, when actually most French people feel pretty much the same way that we do in this country. And Barnier, well, what a hypocrite. I mean, the man who told me that I was small-minded for not supporting free movement of peoples across the whole of the European continent is now running as French president on a ticket that says no more immigration from outside the EU for the next five years, limits on movement within the EU. Oh, and the European Court of Justice should not be supreme over the French courts. I mean, the man is a complete and utter hypocrite. Kirk on Twitter asks, green electricity sounds great, but who is going to pay for it? Taxes are high already. You're going to pay for it. It's very simple. Boris has decided. And the extent to which, the extent to which green subsidy has been put on your electricity bills and hidden from you because all the parties and virtually all the media have supported this over the course of the last 15 years as it's grown and evolved, I think is something of an outrage. But you can say with some confidence that you are paying 20 to 25% at least extra on your electricity bill every single year to subsidise rich landowners and big foreign wind farm companies. And I, I, I just can't think of anything else I've seen in my lifetime that has led to a greater transference of money from the poor to the rich. I think it's an outrage. Do we want to have renewable energy that works? Absolutely, but not on this basis. And I'm sorry, but wind is just not the answer. Local generation at, lo at, at, at local level, it may work, not for the national grid. Right, a couple more. John on email asks, if you were offered the chance to take a quick journey into space and back, would you accept? I suspect that if it was a space mission uh, from this government or perhaps one of the European Union uh, space projects, I'd be a mug to accept because I'm sure they'd make sure it was only going to be a one-way ticket. So I think the answer is no. <laughs> and finally, Richard on email asks, if they only could, which countries would leave the EU next? Well, it's easier, it's easier to leave the European Union if you're not in the euro. Doesn't mean it's impossible being in the euro, but logically, Denmark didn't join the European Union until we joined it, 1st of January 1973. Denmark have opted out of many parts of military cooperation. They've even opted out um, of many of the uh, judicial um, systems within the European Union. And I think Denmark, it's a population of five million, Certainly the last time I was in the Parliament in Copenhagen, many said, you prove that Brexit is a success and we, having kept our own currency, will leave as well. And that's why you've got the European press saying, ah, the fuel crisis is all because of Brexit. They don't want us to succeed. Tomorrow, I'm back with you. It'll be the Tory party conference again. Coming up in a moment, it's going to be Colin Brazier. But first, the all-important weather. <laughs> 